ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. How did a small Christian college in rural America become the epicentre of efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election? Hello there, it's the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West here on RN and ABC Listen, and that story is soon. Now, as the clock ticked over to 2024, Indonesia lost its crown as the world's biggest Muslim nation. Uh, Pakistan now holds the title. But Islam is still central to the country's identity and in recent decades to its politics. So why was religion much less prominent in last week's national election? After all, the new president, Prabowo Subianto, has a history of courting the Islamists, but not this time. Professor Tim Lindsay runs the Centre for Indonesian Law, Islam and Society at Melbourne University. Uh, Tim, welcome. So what's the answer? What we have to remember is that before the previous election in 2019, two years before that in 2017, there had been an enormously polarising election for the position of the governor of Jakarta. The incumbent, known as Ahok, was a Chinese Christian. He had been targeted by Muslim groups on both uh, the double minority grounds of his ethnicity and his religion as a minority religion in Indonesia, Christianity. What resulted was huge demonstrations, somewhere between 700,000 and a million people in the streets of Jakarta demanding the execution of Ahok and so on. Mm. Ahok was tried for blasphemy, ultimately convicted, lost the gubernatorial election. Those events fed into the 2019 election, and Prabowo, one of the candidates running in that election, exploited that by riding that wave as the Islamist candidate. But after he that fell election, short. <laughs> which, well, after that, he said he lost that election. Hmm. And after that election, President Jokowi, confirmed in his role as president for his second term, turned on the hardline Islamists who had been pushing these protests against Ahok and using them as a vehicle to assert real political influence and responding to the religious polarisation that emerged after that, his government began to crack down on hardline Islamist groups. Mm. And so we saw a new law being passed that allowed the government to ban organisations without any need for a judicial process and it used that to disband the Islamic Defenders Front, FPI, a notorious hardline vigilante Islamist group that played a key part in the protests of 2017 and the campaigning in 2019. It also banned Hizbut Tahrir Indonesia and started charging with various offences leaders of these sort of hardline groups. Yeah, this is fascinating because we've had a narrative for at least a decade and a half about the growing radicalisation of some forms of Islam in Indonesia. Are you saying that that is now on the wane? What happened was that conservative and radical Islamist groups, vigilante groups and the like, exploited the political situation in Indonesia particularly around 2017 and into 2019. There's no doubt that Muslims in Indonesia have become more conservative and more observant, more pious, if you like, but that is not the same thing as radical or militant. Mm. We have to bear in mind it's entirely possible to be conservative in your religious outlook without being militant at all. In fact, you may abhor militancy. Yeah. I think it's really important to distinguish between 
growing conservatism, issues of religious intolerance, and militancy or radicalism, because they're not the same things. Yeah. So what there is is this backdrop of increasing piety in Indonesia, and that particular groups exploited that when political opportunities arose. And that ultimately led to deeply polarizing political activity based on this sort of Islamist intolerance, which became very significant in the political process in 27 and 2019. But after that election in 2019, the government of uh, Jokowi, President Jokowi Dodo, began this crackdown. Yeah. By the time we get to now, Islamist groups have been, many of the ones that played an important role in 2017 and 2019, have effectively been pushed back out of the political sphere, unable to mobilise in the way they did back then. Yeah. Where does uh, Prabowo Subianto, the new president, stand in relation to political Islam? Because as you say, he's flirted with it, but he doesn't have a very, uh, let us say, concrete or definite position on political Islam, does he? Prabowo is a highly pragmatic politician. He's a survivor. He's skilled at reinvention. He's an opportunist. He used those qualities back in 2019 to present himself as the Islamist candidate, unsuccessfully, of course. This was a little ironic because he's hardly the obvious candidate for that sort of a role. His mother was Christian. His brother is often described as a fundamentalist Christian. Prabowo himself has hardly got a record of religious piety, at least not in public. For him to be their candidate shows, first of all, his opportunism, but secondly, how much there is an actual lack of a credible mm. candidate for these sort of Muslim organisations. Now, yeah, can I just ask, though, how widespread is the knowledge of Prabowo's family background, especially in Christianity? Well, I think it's quite widely known. It's not a secret, mm. but it didn't seem to stop him becoming the figurehead for these groups, yeah. riding that wave from 2017, mainly because there was no other alternative candidate for them to get behind. Mm. It was clear that President Joko Widodo would not take that sort of position, not least because Ahok, the former governor of Jakarta, who was eventually convicted after the tensions of 2017, had been the deputy governor under Joko Widodo before he became president when he was the governor of Jakarta himself. And Ahok, who was seen as very close to Jokowi, often called Jokowi's brain, that closeness meant that there was no possibility that Jokowi could become the Islamist candidate. In fact, the groups that were campaigning in 2017 and into 2019 had called for his overthrow. Mm. At one point, it marched on the palace. So given that Jokowi could not be their candidate, they had no one else to go to but Prabowo and he was a Muslim and that was probably enough for those purposes. Yeah. What do you think Prabowo's interesting family history with religion, mother and brother are Christians? How do you think this might affect Prabowo's attitude to religious minorities, which are about 10% of the population? Yes, that's right. Muslims constitute about 87% of the population. Well, Prabowo's appearance as the leader of Islamist groups, uh, the channel for Muslim political aspirations in the 2019 election was can probably be seen in retrospect as an aberration, an act of opportunism. Historically, I think he lands much more in the secular nationalist camp who would be keen to emphasise the importance of pluralists 
and who would, like President Jokowi has done in the last term, crack down on hardliners and people trying to use Islamic identity as a political weapon. And given that Prabowo in this current election won mainly because he was actually supported by President Jokowi and is seen as a sort of Jokowi's chosen and endorsed candidate, it's very likely that he would be continuing Jokowi's policies, which would certainly not give much room for political Islam. Mm. So is Prabowo going to be faithful to that founding ideology of Pankasila, which is this, as I understand it, interesting mix of religious pluralism and sort of political social democracy? Is he going to be a faithful guardian of that? Well, that's a very interesting question, Andrew, because what exactly Pankasila means depends on who's in power. Pankasila is, I think, the ultimate motherhood statement. It's the official Indonesian ideology, and it has you know, five components, of which the most important for our purposes is belief in the one and only God, or belief in Almighty God. Now, the Indonesian constitution does not contain the word Islam or any mention of Muslims anywhere in it. And that was deliberate, because by the time Indonesia's founders met, one of the key issues was how to deal with a majority population of Muslims without antagonizing the minority groups who are majority in certain areas, mainly to the east of Indonesia. The fear being that if you privilege Islam, you would lose the Christian parts of Indonesia. And with the revolution pending at the time, the fear was that the Dutch colonial masters returning to reclaim Indonesia would exploit that. So there was much debate, but in the end, this first principle of the national ideology was introduced, which was intended to exclude political Islam and to give equal status to all the religions. That's clear enough, I suppose, but Panchasila has been reinterpreted by successive regimes to mean whatever the regime in power wanted it to mean. For example, without any change to the wording of Panchasila, it has been the state ideology when Indonesia was leaning towards Marxism under Sukarno, then again under Suharto when it was a right-wing US-supported dictatorship, and then again after 1998 when Indonesia became an emerging democracy. And each of those regimes and political systems had a different interpretation of the elements of Panchasila. That sort of inherent flexibility means that Panchasila means what you want it to mean. Under Prabowo, that principle of belief in Almighty God will likely be interpreted to support the notions of pluralism that marginalise political Islam in the way it has been, particularly in the last term of President Jokowi. Tim, even though you've spoken about the crackdown on radical Islam across Indonesia, how do we reconcile that with the situation in Aceh? Now, this is a province. uh, I know it's only one province, but it has Sharia law. Where does this fit into this project of a crackdown on radical Islam? Aceh is an exception in Indonesia. What happens in Aceh, in fact, has very little influence on wider politics in Indonesia. Aceh is the only province in Indonesia which is entitled to apply Islamic law or Sharia in its own right. In all other places, Sharia is not actually a source of law. Islamic norms may be adopted in laws, but Sharia itself is only a source of law in Aceh. And that's the result of the settlement to the long-running war in Aceh between Achenese secessionists and the Indonesian government, which 
was resolved after the, the tsunami in um, 2005. Part of that settlement deal was to give Aceh autonomy and allow it to express this Islamic identity, which had played a part in fueling the secessionist movement. Although the secessionist movement was not actually Islamist in nature, it was part of the deal at the end. What that means is that the central government in Indonesia is very reluctant to become involved in the application or administration of Sharia in Aceh in any way. And that Aceh is treated as, as this unique sort of special case. One of the reasons they're willing to do that is that while Aceh is Islamically very conservative, it's sometimes described as a form of rural conservatism or, or backwards conservatism, which is a different thing to commitment to global Islamist militancy. In other words, Aceh is interested in Achenese mm. understandings of conservative Islam, not in the caliphate or Islamic State. And so from a Jakarta point of view, that's fine. Yeah, I've not been to Aceh. I've been to much of the rest of Indonesia. You've been to Aceh. What, what does it look like on the ground when you um, talk about the application of, of Sharia law there? Aceh looks very much like any other province in Indonesia. Obviously, there's a stronger public expression of Islamic identity. Obviously, there's a much stronger public expression of Islamic identity. But women wearing headscarves is common throughout archipelagic Southeast Asia. And there's nothing in particular that tells you that you are in a province that applies Sharia law at first glance. The institutions of Shariaization, religious police and so forth, the content of regional regulations that introduce Sharia law are often controversial. Some of them are repressive and there have been problems at times relating to human rights. But this is not an extreme case of Islamic Sharia being applied. It's a remote rural province that is very conservative in its interpretation of Islam and which is more preoccupied with its internal conflicts than it is with wider Indonesia. Mm. And this, I think, is reflected in the fact that in the national elections just been held, all political parties taking part had to be national in nature, except in Aceh. Mm. Aceh was the only place that could run its own local political party. So Aceh is the, the special case, the exception in Indonesia as a result of the end of its, its conflict. And it is very conservative, but it is not a hotbed of militancy. Mm. Professor Tim Lindsay, Indonesia scholar at the University of Melbourne, someone who spends a great deal of time in Indonesia. Tim, thank you for joining us on the program. Thanks, Andrew. And this is the Religion and Ethics Report, where you're hearing about the links between religion and the news that's shaping the world. When does anti-Zionism become anti-Semitism? It's possibly the most contentious question of the moment. In 2021, Australia adopted a definition of anti-Semitism using the language of the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, which is known as IRA. It's not legally binding, and some of the examples of anti-Semitism that it uses are contested. Siobhan Marin is the religion and ethics digital lead. She spoke to a variety of voices for this report. Well, the International Holocaust Remembrance Association definition of anti-Semitism adopted in 2016 is the most widely accepted globally. That's Greg Rose, Professor in International Law at the University of Wollongong. Australia is a member country 
And the definition has also been adopted in Australia by both the Liberal and Labour parties at federal level, by federal parliament, by state parliaments, New South Wales and Victoria, for example, as well as a range of universities. The definition reads that anti-Semitism is a certain perception of Jews which may be expressed as hatred towards Jews. Rhetorical and physical manifestations of anti-Semitism are directed towards Jewish or non-Jewish individuals and their property toward Jewish community institutions and religious facilities. As Professor Rose points out, several Australian universities have adopted IRA's definition. Others have chosen to reject it. In a statement last year, La Trobe University said it would adopt the definition, but without the accompanying 11 examples. He's historian and anti-Semitism expert Max Kaiser. There's been a concerted effort to push the working definition of the IHRA along with the examples that go with it. And it's the examples that are the really problematic parts because they're the ones that align criticism of Israel or criticism of Zionism with anti-Semitism. One line of contention is Example 7. It states that denying the Jewish people their right to self-determination, for example by claiming that the existence of a state of Israel is a racist endeavour, amounts to anti-Semitism. David Slukey is director of the Australian Centre for Jewish Civilization at Monash University, and he says although anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism are distinct, there is capacity for one to seep into the other. Anti-Semitism is hatred of Jews, and that can be manifested through speech, through action, um, through intimidation. Anti-Zionism is, as the name suggests, opposition to Zionism, which is a political ideology. For example, criticising Israel is not in and of itself anti-Semitic. Imagining a different way of Israel being organised politically or a different kind of form of uh, self-determination is not in and of itself anti-Semitic. Suzanne Rutland is Professor Emeritus in the Department of Hebrew Biblical and Jewish Studies at the University of Sydney. She's also a member of IRA and says its definition and examples still allow for legitimate criticism of Israel. I think that there is a big difference between criticising government policies, being opposed to actions of settlers or settlements in the West Bank, and saying that Israel has no right to exist and should be destroyed. Is that anti-Semitic? The problem is twofold. Number one, all research shows that something like 80% of Australian Jews are Zionist. They believe Israel has a right to exist. And therefore, in the anti-Zionist narrative, you are an evil person because you are supporting this evil settler colonial state that's carrying out ethnic cleansing and genocide. And that's where it crosses over into anti-Semitism because it's justified to attack you. The other big problem is that almost half the Jewish world now lives in Israel. So if you're supporting the destruction of Israel, you're also supporting violence against the Jews of Israel. 
Dr. Slukey says he understands why some Jewish Australians may want to cast the broadest net possible when defining anti-Semitism. If one identifies themselves as Zionist and that becomes part of the sort of core of their Jewish identity, and then an attack on that becomes an attack on their Jewishness, then you know naturally they're going to see expressions of anti-Zionism as anti-Semitic. But you know there are Jews who don't identify as Zionists who sort of imagine different sort of modes of being Jewish in the world. But I also want to just emphasise that we're not talking about a binary here between Zionists and anti-Zionists. We're really talking about a spectrum, and Jews exist along all parts of that spectrum. Siobhan Marin with that report, and you're with me, Andrew West. So how did a small Christian college in Michigan end up at the heart of Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election? Hillsdale College is strongly conservative, but in a quiet way. Its founders were actually anti-slavery abolitionists, and it's very proud of its great books course. In recent years, though, it's become the intellectual centre of Trump-style conservatism. Even more controversially, some senior college figures allegedly plotted to undermine the result in Michigan, a key state that Joe Biden won. Danny Hakem of the New York Times has been looking into the controversy. The college was taken over in 2000 by a new president. His name is Larry Arn. He comes out of a school of thinking in the U.S. called West Coast Straussianism. It's a political philosophy movement that's very conservative. You know, it holds that progressivism is really a malign force and that the ever-expanding administrative state is a really um, corroding influence in America. The president of the college holds this view, and he's brought a number of people into Hillsdale's orbit that also advance this kind of view. It's very influential, or it's become very influential, not just in conservative circles, but specifically Republican circles, hasn't it? In, In what way? Particularly in the Trump era, the college really advanced and became a very influential place. Larry Arn was even floated as a possible education secretary pick for Donald Trump. He didn't get that job, but he did end up running a special commission for Trump called the 1776 Commission. So he was influential in the administration, and he's for a long time been very close to Mike Pence who was Trump's vice president. And the college really became a stopping point for a lot of conservatives in the Trump era, you know, whether it was Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader in the United States, or any number of conservative figures. Mike Pence delivered the commencement address, I think, in 2018. So it really became an important stopping point for the conservative movement. Interestingly, as I said, it was founded by anti-slavery abolitionists. For a long time, the college had a pretty good record on race. I mean, I think it was the first college in America to ban discrimination based on race or sex or religion. How did this college then find itself as the flag bearer of a movement against so-called critical race theory? It doesn't even track admissions by race. You know, what a lot of students and alumni have told me is it's just, it's not a very diverse college, certainly not now. 
in the 1970s, 1980s, the college decided not to take any money from the government. It's had a very unusual stance uh, relative to other colleges, doesn't accept money from the government, and so it has to do a lot more fundraising than other colleges would. It's an unusual school. Well, let's go to the days after Donald Trump loses the 2020 election. He claims to have won even just on the night, but it's more grumbling in the first few days rather than an organised resistance. What happens, though, at Hillsdale College to kind of get the campaign, this much more organised campaign to overturn the election, underway? What happens at Hillsdale? Just to be clear, this wasn't even something that I was looking at when I started reporting on the college. I got interested in the college because it was becoming such an important place for Republicans. So that's why I started looking at the college. Just coincidentally, I also happened to cover the investigation that's been going on of Donald Trump in the state of Georgia. So I I do pay a lot of attention to these electors' issues. So I have a database of a lot of documents from the January 6th committee, the House committee that investigated the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. And at one point, I put in Hillsdale into the database of documents I had uh, just to see what would happen. And I was surprised to see there was involvement by the college in the effort to advance Trump electors in the state of Michigan, even though Donald Trump lost the state of Michigan. Michigan was among the swing states that Trump lost, that he and his campaign tried to find a way around their loss in in those states. And Michigan was one of those states. Mm. So Hillsdale was involved in that effort. There was a meeting with a couple of lawyers. One of them is Robert Norton. The other is Ian Northon. Who were those lawyers? Because one of them has a very close connection with Hillsdale. That's right. Robert Norton is the general counsel of the college, so he's the college's top lawyer. According to some of the testimony in the House investigation that took place about what happened after the election, Bob Norton, you know, who was the general counsel, became very involved in efforts to keep Trump in power through electors by advancing this slate of electors in the state of Michigan that would support Trump, even though he lost the election there, he lost the popular vote. So the way it works in the U.S. is in the state of Michigan, if you win the popular vote, you're supposed to get all of the electoral votes from that state. The plan that they had was to advance a different slate of electors, even though Trump had not won the popular vote. So Bob Norton was lobbying some legislators in the state of Michigan as part of that effort to advance those fake electors who weren't the real genuine electors. Mm. And in your article, you uh, uncover this meeting that goes on between uh, Bob Norton and Ian Northen. And then there's another lawyer, someone who's much more famous uh, than either of those two, who dials into this meeting. Uh, Who was that? (laughs) I'll just explain. Ian Northen, he is an alumni of the college who did legal work for the college. He also was very involved. He worked with these Trump electors to try to help them. They had a meeting in the days after the election, after Trump lost the election, was actually at Bob Norton's house. 
and Ian Northen was there. And then Rudy Giuliani called into that meeting. He was obviously the outside lawyer who was representing Donald Trump, Donald Trump's personal lawyer. And Giuliani you know, became the point man to try to keep Trump in power after the election, even though he'd lost the election. How much of Hillsdale's broader alumni, because it is so connected, as you've illustrated, with the Republican Party machine, I mean, we're not just talking about a kind of conservative intellectual environment, that's across many campuses, many schools in the United States, but we're talking specific links to a Republican machine. How much did Hillsdale mobilise other alumni to be involved in this uh, effort to deny the election results? Well, I don't know if they mobilized a lot of alumni to be involved in the effort. What I found is there's some members of the administration that runs the school that were involved. So you have the general counsel who had some involvement. You had this outside lawyer who did work for the college who had some involvement. There was also indications that there were other members of the administration who were you know, aware of what was happening. There was a statistician who did some work to try to advance this effort. The president of the college, Larry Arn, appears to have had some knowledge that this was going on, though it's not clear the extent of the knowledge he had. And just to be clear, the college, they wouldn't let me talk to any of their officials. Their line on this has been that this is all overblown. They've disputed the congressional testimony of several of the people who spoke about the college, or at least two of the people who spoke about the college. So Their position is that their people didn't do anything uh, wrong. We should say, though, that in the end, Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale, does not want to cross the Rubicon and be part of a full-blown conspiracy to deny a democratic election. This is because he's very close, as you mentioned earlier, to Vice President Mike Pence. What happens there? Yeah, I mean, Arn actually met with Mike Pence on January 5th, 2021, the riot took place at the Capitol. What he has said, and I've confirmed with Pence's staff that you know they did talk on that day. The way Arn has described it is that he supported Pence's ultimate decision, which was to not go along with this effort to block the certification of the vote. So Arn ultimately came down on the side of observing the Constitution and democracy. Right. He did support Pence's decision. At least that's what he has said. He's also said that he believes that Michigan was stolen, which is a pretty strong statement for a college president to make. I've asked the college if they have any evidence to back that up. They have not provided any. Just finally, Danny, the funny thing is with Larry Arn, he doesn't seem to want Hillsdale to have too much association with Donald Trump personally. What does he say that he likes about Trumpism? But he's rather uh, he's rather diffident about Trump. He's always been my read on it is that he's been more enthusiastic about the MAGA movement than Trump himself. He endorsed Trump in 2016. He hasn't endorsed him yet this time, though he He tends not to make endorsements during the primary season, but he has been very close to Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who for a long time was Trump's chief opponent. He hasn't been completely in lockstep with Trump, you know, the whole way. 
Well, it's very good to speak with you. Danny Hakem is an investigative reporter at the New York Times. We've been discussing his deep dive feature story in the New York Times magazine, how a conservative Christian college got mixed up in the 2020 plot to undermine the presidential election. Danny, thank you for joining us on the program. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. That is the show for now. You can find us at ABC Listen. A big thanks to Hong Jang, Jack Schmidt and Harvey O'Sullivan. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.